Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. As you know, we scour the earth for some fantastic, fantastic people, talent, DJs, promoters, agents, whoever that have great stories. And I was able to convince with Karen this fe this fellow who is a nightlife imp impresario. So this is how we're going to start. True House Stories, here we go. Welcome to True House Stories. I'm Lenny Fontana coming out of NYC. And today we have the man himself from one of the greatest nights I played in the UK and many other DJs. He's the creator of this 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 name in a moment I'm going to tell you this brand that is classic but yet still has excellence next to it like you know when you go bing you know that asterisk and when I say this word hard times kids know that name hard times because some of their parents went to the clubs and the thing is the hard times brand is a brand that went decades, not just 10, but three, and working on its fourth, towards its fourth decade. And this promoter, who has an extensive history in nightclub business as well, has farming experience. So it's this is going to be interesting for him to explain his life and how this all came from going from one extreme to a complete other and taking big risks on bringing international DJs and putting on events around the northern area of the UK, including in London as well, and taking it abroad. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome the one man that's known for hard times, Mr. Stephen Rain. <laughs> Steve Rain. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, that uh, lovely introduction, Lenny. Um, yeah, I'm glad to be here and uh, looking forward to um, telling people how and where and why and what we're about over the next uh, two hours. So, yeah, yeah, thank you for having me. Buckle in, everybody, because it's going to be interesting. Steve's always has some great stories, great stories, but we're going to get right into it because I know Steve wants to tell you all about it. I ask everyone the same question. We have this thing with True House Story, Steve. It's pretty simple. It's like, how does music find the young Steve Rain? And then from there, you could take us on your journey because that's an important part to how you created your brand. So if you could take us back to the little kid or, you know, teenager and how you worked your way up, and then we'll explain, then you can have us on the story of hard times, of course. Yeah, I mean, um, music came to me quite late, to be fair. Um, certainly dance music. Uh, my my introduction to um, to going out from being a teenager um, up until hard times was obviously going to the local pub with the lads and then you go on to the local disco. The disco was obviously first time round. And um, and yeah, I mean, look, Saturday Night Fever, um, you know, was at a time when um, 
was just leaving school. That played a big part, disco. I mean, listen, I was there for the for that disco period, and it was wonderful. Um, I actually entered the um, yeah the Yorkshire disco dancing competition, and um, which they held all over because obviously disco was happening on it. John Travolta, everybody wanted a white suit and to be able to dance, and I was no exception to that. And um, and yeah, so that that was my uh, musical introduction. To be fair, disco, and then um, yeah, I, I'd progress, um, get married, I'd have, I'd have sons, and um, and then um, yeah, as often life can, it had changes, and found myself in a change um, from being settled to going out again. And um, and yeah, I was introduced to dance music by um, by my co-founder and partner at the time, uh, Donna Skinner. Um, she convinced me to um, hang up my silk, my silk suit, my silk tie, and change it for a pair of jeans and a shirt. And we tripped off. We tripped off to the hacienda. And uh, in Manchester. And I would imagine like lots of dreams, right? Um, I had a dream which originated from going to the Hacienda, um, which completely changed my outlook of going out. Um, from standing at the edge of a dance floor, looking in and watching what was happening, I found myself in the middle of the dance floor with this massive surge of energy around me, um, never witnessing anything like it ever, listening to Graham Park and Tom Wainwright, who were the residents of the Hacienda at the time, take me on a journey that I'd never been on before. And, um, and from that one night, came out of that nightclub and like probably many came away thinking that's something that I want to be a part of. I don't want to just turn up and dance and go home. I want to do something else. I want to do more. I want to be involved. And, um, and it was through going to the Hacienda, um, yeah, we would meet our resident DJs who started the journey. We've got to remember is about hard times, is it was never ever set up as a commercial venture. It was never a business proposition. It was never ever done for money. It was done for the love of the music and for the love and for the the true desire to want to create something of our own. So we were all very naive. We had no understanding of how to set it up, how to promote it, how to manage it. But but we learned together. We grew together. We were all at the same level. Miles and Elliot, who went and went on to be probably some of the best, most recognised resident DJs in the country. Well, actually, worldwide at the time, when we met them, 
they were playing the odd gig here and there, but the majority of the gigs they were playing were still in the bedrooms. Um, Pete Jenkinson, who became our right-hand man, manager, helped with everything um, and was a key figure in our setup and our growth. Um, <coughs> he worked in the office at the Hacienda, helped with bookings. So his limited knowledge he brought. Um, and we found a venue, we discussed it. We actually discussed it on, again, what probably a lot of people do after the, after the night had finished. You'd go back to a friend's house where the party would continue until the early hours, um, sometimes the day after. And it would be at those gatherings where you'd sit round a table or stand in a kitchen with a drink in your hand and you'd discuss what you'd like to do. And in a lot of instances, these discussions in those early hours don't ever progress from out of the kitchen. But in our case, they not only progressed, but they became reality. And the dreams we all shared all came became reality. And um, that was the wonderful thing about Hard Times, was that it was set up as a result of a dream, and, 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 and that never changed. It never stepped from being a realised dream. It always maintained being a realised dream, and it still is to this day. It's never been a commercial entity. It's never been about making money. It's, it's never been about being the best. It's never, it's never been about whatever anybody else does. It's always been about our dream. And that's, and that's very much how it is today. But can I ask you something that's very important that you said, you know, at the time when you're beginning, there, no, these are all dreams. So what's the financial thing that's keeping you going to bring in money before this all started? <clears throat> you know, well, well, what happened was, um, I mean, I had, um, I had a job which I worked at the time. Um, I worked in sales, selling selling things to people. Um, Pete had a job. He worked at, in the office at the Hacienda. Donna worked in the local bank, uh, which we didn't rob, by the way. <laughs> um, Miles and I both had jobs. Um, and the finances to, to, to start hard times, I basically applied for a bank loan um, on the basis that I was going to buy a car because if I had gone and asked for a bank loan to set up hard times, they'd have just looked at me silly. But I went and I sat in front of the manager and I said, I want to buy you this car. And I, and I showed them that I could afford to pay for it on a monthly basis. And I borrowed the money to kickstart hard times on the pretext that I was buying a vehicle. And the reality of it is, and that paid for the, that paid the deposits for the DJs. It also paid for the for some of the flyers. Obviously, you know, we put deposits down. We had to be really careful. We only had a very small amount of money. Um, if we hadn't achieved a certain number of people on week one, they would never ever have been week two. 
because because it was that tight. We we weren't we weren't like you know any of the other clubs that were in operation at the time, i.e. the Ministry of Sound to name one that were that were big finance organisations. You know we we were we were just a group of people that had a dream with a limited amount of money, and that you know we did what we needed to do to get us from the first week. I mean. We had to pay, and I understand, I mean, listen, the biggest cost were deposits for the DJs um, and the mixed mag advert, which had to be paid for a month in advance, um, which you can see now. That's the one right there, right? That's the one. Um, That had to be paid for. Without this, we would forever have got to week two. What you've got to remember is this, is that no social media, no Instagram, no Facebook, no Twitter, no nothing. You basically got your advert in Mixmag, who you have to recognise, and I don't know whether they are given the recognition that they should be given. Mixmag was our Bible. If you were... In, if you worked within the dance music industry, you looked at Mixmag and it was our Bible. It told us all about what was happening musically. It told, told us all about who was playing this, who played that. It told us who was playing where. Um, it basically opened up the dance music industry throughout the whole of the country. Worldwide, it was the that and DJ were the two main magazines that allowed people to become aware of this dance music industry that we all are a part of. Um, and yeah, they did it very, very well. So we got our advert designed. At the time, if you looked at that magazine, you would see that. The majority of adverts at the time were just bright colours. Um, we wanted to come out with something different. We wanted to come out with a statement. We called it Hard Times. That was different. Um, the image that we used is, a, is an image of a man with the whole world on his shoulders. That reflects a hard time. But truthfulness and there's honesty and there's grit in that image. And the the message that we were trying to get over is is that that look, the country enduring hard times at the time, massive financial worries, um, crashes, things weren't good. But it but the statement and the message we try to tell people was no matter how hard a time you're having, no matter how many troubles you have on your shoulders, forget them. Come to the club on a Saturday night, get on the dance floor, and the DJ will make you forget him. And he did. And he did it week in, and he did it week out. And 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 people got the theory and they got the ethos and the understanding of what we were trying to, to achieve. They became part of the movement, the hard time movement. They were there for the music. Yeah, people got dressed up, but our crowd became very 
very knowledgeable. They knew when they were being played and taken on the right journey, an interesting journey. But they also knew if someone was, wasn't just up to the job. I'm not saying that happened on a regular basis, but, yeah, we were very, very musically orientated. For hard times, it was and still is all about the music. Louis Vega, he described us as an institution of house music. Tony Humphreys, well before music on, said hard times, it's all about the music. Right. We can lay claim to those way before anybody else tried to lay claim to those statements. They, those were statements made in our early years and statements that are still as relative now. Um, so, yeah, from day one, we wanted to project an image that we believed reflected us and reflected what we were trying to do musically. Again, it wasn't a gimmicks. We were a tourist attraction. We were a, a place for like-minded people were all interested in the same type and style of music, which proved to be US House and Garage. They came, they came from all over the country to listen to that music. And they went home each week happy. And it grew and it grew um, from those humble beginnings in that little village in West Yorkshire, where there should never, ever have been a nightclub. If you ask people, how did it happen? They will say, we've no idea. It should never have happened. I can remember doing an interview with, with the World DMC and, um, and they said, well, it shouldn't have happened where, you know, you weren't in a city, you were, you know, and I said, well, no, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. And that's the power of what you set out to achieve. Some things, if they're meant to be, and if everything falls into line and everything connects and the right people are involved, you can defy logic. If you believe in it, it can happen. Okay. This is a perfect example. So here's my question. From the kitchen to the first gig, okay, what's involved to get this gig off the ground? We know you had to get the money together. You had to get the MixMag advert. Did you guys do hand-to-hand -hand flyering, posters? Yeah, what mean, are all involved? Because now today, people just do click, set up an invitation, and it's done. Back then, it was not like that. And plus, you said something very interesting. You said, this should never have happened where it happened. So how do you get people to come to a place that never existed before? By, by getting people to become part of the dream by, by putting something to them that is of so much interest, creates so much desire, so much want to be part of it that they can't not come, that they jumped in the cars, got on the trains, caught the buses and made that journey to that little sleepy village in West Yorkshire called Murfield, right? That very first night, they came in the hundreds. They came in the thousands, to be fair. They, they came from all over the country 
They made the journey because they bought into what we were trying to tell them they would experience if they made it and experience it they did. And, um, and yeah, I mean, look, if you speak, I mean, I still I speak to people now that came to that very first night and were with us and have been with us from those, what I call the early years. And um, they're still, to this very day, put it down as one of the most memorable and unforgettable experiences that they ever had. It, if, if magic could happen, it happened then. Because, you know, people, you got to realize it's the beginning of house music. There's a lot of things happening at the same time. It's, it's the beginning of these big parties. You're right at the forefront of the beginnings of a lot of things going on at the same time. And the financial risk you're taking, because you don't know if it's going to be a success. Well, you know, to be fair, when, when you set, when you set, when you light the touch paper, you don't know whether it's going to burn forever or it, it's, it's going to go out within, within a matter of seconds. You've no idea. Again, right? No social media. Now you can release a part. You can put it on Facebook. And over the course of a number of weeks, you can pretty much tell how many people are going to come because of the interest that's generated. Now, what we had to do, and it's what everybody had to do, we were no different to everybody else at that time. I mean, listen, we're talking about across the country a network of clubs that were all setting out to do and achieve what we were setting out and trying to achieve. It was a very, very small community of, of promoters across the country some really really good ones i mean i can't name them all but i mean so people like james bailey from venus the ministry jeff oaks from renaissance phil gifford from wobble charlie chester that there's a list of people that at the time dave beer you know i mean listen dave beer from back to basics our neighbor they were all as equally passionate about what they were doing and what they were trying to achieve. And the movement was all growing at the same time. So it was the very beginning. These were the early years. These were the start. So we were all finding our own feet. You know, people were jockeying for the same DJs. Um, and um, you know, that in itself, booking DJs, nine times out of ten, you just phoned him, you phoned him at home and said, do you want to play? You know, agents haven't become the prima donnas that they've become now. <laughs> you know, um, they weren't there. It was very much on a personal level. And um, and so, yeah, it, it was all very naive, but all very personal. Um, and yeah, so the industry obviously has moved on massively, but we had to, instead of just pressing a button, we had to physically get bags, 
full of these flyers that we used to have made. I mean, listen, we our flyers, I've got people who have them and have saved them and cherished them. And the, our flyers were like little mini works of art, right? We went on an image. We went on an image that we believed reflected hard times. Um, and there were lots of them. Very, very cleverly done. And we did them in-house. You know, we didn't send them out. They were all very personal. Um, and we literally had to get in a car, drive to Leeds, drive to Bat Bradford or Wakefield, Dewsbury, and all the little surrounding village, you know, little towns and cities that had record shops, clothes shops, fashion shops, bars. And you basically, physically, manually went in and asked if you could leave flyers and what people would do. They'd go in, they'd go shopping on a Saturday and they'd pick these flyers up and they'd look what was happening. But your flyers were there and there may be another 10 clubs flyers there, right? Um, and it was all pretty regional at the time, you know, because they, we were we were in, in, um, in West Yorkshire in a little village. We weren't in a city. We were in Leeds. We were in Wakefield or Bradford. We were just in a very, very little town, a little, a little village. Um, so yeah, that's what that's what used to happen, and um, you'd no idea. Listen, people had phone and and ask if they could arrange for a party to come. I.e., you know, there'd be a, a minibus coming up from Stoke on Trent. I'm just using this as an example, or coming up from Nottingham, and they'd ring and can we put us name downs? And so you got an idea that people were coming, but but you no idea really until. You went, and I, I, it, the feeling that you'd get, we'd set off to drive to the club on a Saturday night, and the route we'd take would always be the same. You had no idea. Then you'd get to a point where you came round the corner and you could see. Don't get me wrong, there were some times when you came round the corner, you just wanted to keep driving. Because <laughs> you thought, shit, oh where God. is everybody? Where is everybody? Okay. But the times when you came around the corner, and the queue was the whole length of the street, right? Then, then obviously, you know, you knew that um, it would be way. a wonderful night. And um, I mean, look, we, unlike a lot of clubs that enjoyed being in one particular club throughout its history, we we were never lucky we, through. A number of reasons. Our first club, which was in Murphy, a little village called Murfield, we we were only there. We started in the August, August '92, and um, the seventh of August '92, and um, come March we had to because it wasn't the right place, and basically we'd outgrown it. To be fair. Um, we were turning people away by the hundreds. And uh, we said, that's no good because obviously you want to try and people make the effort and take a long journey to come to you to the night. It's not, it's not good for them to go away and not witness the experience. So we outgrew Murfield and we would open in the nearby Huddersfield, which is about 10 miles away. Again, Huddersfield never ever had a night, you know, like ours. 
Um, it was all very disco-y and shirt and tie nightclubs. And um, and we moved. And, um, you know, that in itself was a real a gamble. We didn't know whether people would be happy to change the club from one to another. But we put the advert out. We went and put the flyers out. We organised everything. And I can remember driving to Huddersfield uh, that night and uh, coming, it was a dual carriageway, coming round the corner and the queue was just unbelievable. Never see, it was like five deep, right? Five, oh, bigger than five deep, ten deep. And it went on and on and on and on. And, um, yeah, welcome, welcome to Huddersfield. And... Um, what a brilliant, brilliant night. And from memory, from memory, I think it would be strict, I think it would be George Morell. What a lovely fella. Never spoke to him or heard anything from George. He would come and play for us in London. I think George would play the opening night in Huddersfield. And um, yeah, a lovely guy. Um, and um, yeah, welcome to Huddersfield. And then we had some. Unbelievable times in Huddersfield. Um, it enabled us to expand. More people could come through the doors, which enabled us to be more adventurous with the lineups. The first couple of months, we were finding our feet, and obviously, we brought we we actually booked a, a quite a wide cross section of DJs. And if you look at if you look at the opening night. Let's be, if you look at that artwork for the opening night, you'll see that on the opening night, the first night we ever operated, we had Robert Owens, who became a, a, a good friend and played for us many times and obviously worked with us on the label. Um, Kevin Saunderson and... Um, and a, an Italian lad called Daniel Devoli. That would be our opening night. Okay. The week after, we brought down from Scotland the very, very credible Soma Records, um, who are still going today and are as equally as strong. Then the Ministry of Sound, we booked in our first month, we had the ever-famous Ministry of Sound coming and bringing Tony Humphries and, and CJ McIntosh. And then we finished the month, our first month, with Farley Jack Master Funk. So we had a really cross section. The second, the second, we mixed, we mixed it up again um, with um, with. If you just go on to the the second advert, that one, you can see that um, you know it was mixed. It was a very, it was a very mixed up lineup, um, but. What happened over the space of those two months, first three months, the nights where the US House DJs came, right, and the music that they played got the best response and the people went away happier on those nights. They kind of locked in to the, that music that, that was being played. So the decision was organic, to be fair. 
it was a decision that was made for us. And then through the course of the next few months when we moved to Huddersfield, we just capital capitalised and, and believed that the way forward was to be different, not to be like any of the other clubs that played a cross-section of music, but to specialise and concentrate on bringing the guys over from, whether it be Chicago, New York, Miami, San Francisco. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.